All right, here we are. Uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And this morning we're going to focus on verses 10 through 18 uh, as we continue in the sermon series through the book of Hebrews. Now I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this sermon series that, that Hebrews can be a difficult book to, uh, to navigate. It can be a difficult book to understand. And there are a few uh, clues and secrets to help you understand the, the flow of this book. And so if you struggle with it, just understand uh, this secret. One of the ways in which you can understand the book of Hebrews is by understanding to whom the author is addressing. Okay, He's addressing a Hebrew community, a community of ethnic Jewish people somewhere in the Roman Empire, not in Israel. It's a community that is bonded together by their racial similarity. They share a background. They share a culture. They share a language, a heart language. They share similar stories. Now among that crowd, some of them have, de- have decided to follow Jesus. Some of them are Christ followers. Uh, some of them are just fans of Jesus. All right, he was a good guy. He was a good teacher. He did miracles. But I'm not going to give my life to him. Uh, and then some of them were not believers at all. They would never name the name of Christ. Uh, they wouldn't believe in Jesus. But they stick around in this community because there are other ethnic Jews. And so they can tolerate, they can tolerate the Jesus talk. Uh, but they're really just there for the cultural similarities that bond this group together. And so at any point in the, in the letter... The author is writing or addressing, it could have been a sermon, and the author is talking to, at any one point, one of those three categories. Not too hard to imagine in a room like this, look around, right? There are some of you who are born-again believers. Darrell said, I was born again 43 years ago, or something like that, right? Uh, Yes, he nods, yeah. He said that. So in this room, there are people who would stand up and say, I gave my life to Jesus, and He has transformed me, and I've been forgiven and redeemed, and, and I follow Jesus as best as I can. I, I've given my life to Him. There are many of you that would say that. At the same time, there are many of you who are here that like Jesus. You don't have a problem with Him personally. He's a, a great teacher. You're a fan. You're sort of kicking the tires, maybe, of Christianity, and you're exploring who He is and what His message is and what it means. And, and so you could be in this sort of exploration uh, phase. You've never given your life to Jesus. You don't trust Him, but you don't hate Him, right? There are many people in the room that kind of fit that category. And then there are other people in the room who you grew up in church, and so this is just part of your routine. And so culturally, you identify with church and Sunday morning activities, and this is just a part of your family life routine. But it doesn't mean that you're a born-again believer, right? Jesus said in in Matthew 7, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will go to heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. What is the will of Him? That we believe. Right? Is that clear to everybody? Of course it is. It's very clear. I know know you're all very smart. So, uh, So that's the key to understanding Hebrews, is knowing who He's talking to. And then also understanding that a lot of the ways that He teaches, the long quotes of Old Testament stories and illustrations, this is a typical Jewish way of teaching. He's teaching Jews in a a way that they would understand by stringing together lots of references. And we can get lost in those references and we can get lost in some of the cultural nuances because as far as I know, there aren't any born-again Hebrews in the room. Come see me if you are afterward. Uh, 
But there may be, and so we, even still you would have a hard time understanding all the nuances, the cultural nuances, because this is written 2,000 years ago. So, let's, before I digress, let's get into uh, Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 18 this morning. Now, we've just talked about why Jesus is so much better than the angels. The angels mediated the Old Covenant. They were the ones who delivered the Old Covenant. See Galatians 3.19. They, they delivered it. And so, there was a fascination with angels among the Hebrew community. They loved angels. Angels symbolized to them the importance of the Old Testament message. And because they had suffered and struggled, many of the believers in the community were trying to go back into Judaism. And so the author is saying, don't go back. Don't go back. Don't backslide into something that you previously knew. Press forward in Christ. He's urging them not to go backward, but to press forward. And he's doing so by demonstrating how much more superior that Jesus is. You can't give your life to something better, to someone better than Jesus. That's what he's trying to tell them. And so in the context, we see that Jesus is better than the angelic mediation. So in verse 10, it says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Great, deep. Uh, rich word propitiation verse 18 for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are tempted that's confusing a little bit right it's hard to navigate all that he's just trying to describe but if you look back at verse 9 for a second he says we see him jesus who was for a little while made lower than the angels namely jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All right, so the author of Hebrews is telling the community of Hebrews, these Jewish folks, and he's urging them that you need to give your life to Jesus. There's nothing more superior that you can live for, that you can give your life to. For us, we would say that you can give your life to your career or to your kids or to your your, uh, spouse or to your hobbies. There's a lot of things that you can give your life to. Some of them are noble. Some of them are good. But there's nothing better that you can do than to give your life to Jesus. And so for this community, he's telling them that and he's highlighting for them all the blessings and benefits that Jesus accomplished for them. Uh, He's telling them all these ways that Jesus has blessed them. Uh, and so in that way, he was telling them, as we talked about last week, that they, can't, they should not neglect so great a salvation. 
Jesus has saved us. Why would we turn backward? Why would we go backward into something else? And so he's highlighting all the benefits that there are in Jesus. All the great ways in which Jesus has rescued us. Jesus has accomplished the greatest rescue mission ever known to man. Uh, I'm a fan of military books. And, uh, and I, I remember reading about the capture of bin Laden and uh, reading about SEAL Team 6. Anybody ever read books like that? And, and getting involved and seeing in how they were able to rescue captives and how uh, in all these ways they were going on these rescue missions to release the captives. This is what Jesus did for us. He saw us in captivity, bound by sin and the devil, and enslaved to our own passions and desires. And He came to set us free, to give us life, to give us forgiveness, to give us grace and mercy and hope and eternity. And and so He accomplished the greatest rescue mission ever known to man. Uh, Verse 10 describes, and it says about that salvation this way, that He was bringing many sons to glory. That His goal was to... uh, Purchase for himself a people, us. Don't get hung up on the the masculine uh, terms in which they're speaking. This was a Hebrew way of speaking. But we would include, of course, sons and daughters that God is purchasing for himself, men and women, boys and girls, uh, all people from all nations that they might know him and be a part of his his, uh, body of believers. He describes that salvation in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And then he highlights these aspects of the salvation. And if you'll just hang with me, I'm going to show you uh, the five or six ways that he is highlighting the salvation. The first one is he sanctifies us. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source. What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to be sanctified? Well, when we talk about salvation and the way that Jesus saves us, it's broken down into three parts. The first part is He justifies us. That is, when you give your life to Jesus, you are legally declared righteous. Legally declared righteous. Uh, the end goal is that you will go to heaven one day. That's the glorification part. So there's justification where you're legally declared righteous. You're illegally adopted into the family of God. You're, you legally become a part of His household. And then there's glorification when all that's going to be realized. You're going to be ushered into the kingdom. Uh, Revelation 20 describes the book of life. And it's going to say that when we die, we're going to all face the judgment seat. And we're going to come before Him. And books will be opened. And He's going to say uh, that those whose names were found written in the book of life will enter into glory. That's the goal of our salvation, that we would be in His presence in His glory. Amen? Amen. But now is the middle part of salvation that none of us love, and that's the sanctification part, right? The sanctification part is the hard part. That's the part... I made up a dumb metaphor. Let's see if it works. I don't know. It may, it may not at all. But let's just say um, your car is filthy, And you come to a moment in humility and brokenness where you recognize the condition of your car's filthiness and how gross it is. And so you come to uh, the altar of car wash and and you you, you go to pay and roll down the window and, and you realize the price has been paid for you, right? And so your car at that point is legally declared cleansed, right? You haven't gone through the car wash yet. It's going to be clean on the other side, but, but at this point, it's the process has begun. Uh, the end part is your car is going to be shiny and it's going to spray that 
uh, glossy stuff on it and, and it's going to come out of the other end and it's going to look great and it's going to be clean and it's going to be dried. And, and so that's the end goal. Uh, but it's that middle part where the metaphor kind of breaks down because uh, when you go through the car wash, you just take a nap or you sing because no one's listening or you, or you scroll through your phone or you do something. But, but that's where the metaphor breaks down because in sanctification, we don't do nothing, Right? The car wash does everything. It cleans the car. It does all the sprays and jets and foams and all kinds of stuff happen. But but that's where it doesn't work for this story. But we participate in the process of sanctification. Jesus could snap and you're righteous. Practically, you're living a holy life. You're resisting temptation. You're walking in Christ. You're memorizing Scripture. You're, you're, You're doing well. All that could happen, but He doesn't do it that way. Isn't that one of the greatest disappointments in Christianity, right? For a lazy person like us that that maybe we just want to just wake up and the process is over. Um, We want sanctification to be easy, but it's hard. We have to wake up and we have to show up and we have to submit ourselves. We have to yield. We take control of our life. Even after we've given our life to Jesus, we, we reach for it and we say, I can make that decision and I, I want to go this way. I don't want to go that way. And, and so there's this constant tension in the already but not yet. Right? Already declared righteous, not yet experiencing it. Already forgiven, still struggling with sin. Jesus sees, when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Christ as a robe that covers us. But we don't feel very righteous, do we? We know we still have this daily battle with sin. And that's the process of sanctification. One of the ways in which He sanctifies us is through humility and suffering. Anybody suffer? Anybody experienced suffering? Yeah. And we all do. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But the second aspect of salvation that he tells us, not only does he sanctify us, but look at verses 11 through 13. In verses 11 through 13, it says, The one who sanctifies us and those who are being sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, I will talk of your name, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Uh, verse 13, again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. What's he talking about here? One of the aspects of salvation is that God adopts us into his family. The picture of adoption is beautiful. The picture of adoption is that in which somebody who wasn't your child, who would likely face a more difficult reality, becomes adopted into your family so that you can give them stability and love and affection and attention. And they become a part of your family. It's a beautiful picture, the picture of adoption. And in the picture of adoption, God uses that language to show us one aspect of this great salvation. That you're a family member of God. That you are in His household. That you are a part of His family. He could have, he could have given you any title. He saved us. It's, we, he created us. He could have called us anything. But He chose to say, for those who are in Christ, you are now a son. You are now a daughter of the King. You are now a brother and a sister. And with all the benefits 
of being a part of the family. You get an heir. Uh, you get an inheritance. I see Ephesians 2. That there were, you get all these benefits of being a part of the family. And he's equally harsh for those who are outside of the family. For those who are in the family, there is this blessing and benefit of being a part of it. But for those on the outside, there is no expectation of blessing. There is no expectation of inheritance. You say, well, I, I want to go to heaven. I want to be a part of the kingdom, but I don't want to go through Jesus. Well, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> say you found the wealthiest person in your town and you said, I want to live in your house. And you just walked up to them and you knocked on the gates and you had your U-Haul Right? Pull behind your car and, and you drove up with all your stuff and you said, I want to move in. And he said, this is my house. These are my, this, is, this is for me and my family and you're not in my family. You're not welcome. If it wouldn't work in practical ways, why would we think it works? Why would God ever let us into heaven if we despise His Son and His salvation? So there's no hope for heaven outside of Jesus Christ. But for the family, there is every demonstration of affection, stability, love, inheritance, blessing. For those in which we're a part of His family, it's all there. Adopting us into His family demonstrates His great affection for you. Have you ever just woke up to the reality that you are a child of God? That He has redeemed you from a former way of life. That He has bought you and brought you into His household. All the blessings and all the benefits of sonship and daughtership. That you're a child of the king. And there's a great stability in that. Hebrews will go on to describe that at any moment you can go into the presence of God. That you can come in at any moment and cry out, Abba, Father, I, I'm your, you're my dad and I'm your child. And there is a sense in which you can have this Familial relationship. That's one of these blessings of the salvation that Jesus purchased for us. Another blessing, not only does He sanctify us, which is hard, but not only does He call us family, which is good, but He also identifies with us. He also identifies with us. Look at verses 14 through 17. Verses 14 through 17, He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of these same things, so that through death He might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and he would deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In this way, Jesus describes, the salvation is described by the author here through Jesus as though Jesus becomes one of us. That he doesn't just save from the outside, but that he condescended to our level and became one of us and experienced what we experienced. Have you ever thought about what toddler Jesus was like? Or what infant Jesus was like, or what awkward teenager, not if you're a teenager, I don't mean that in a bad way, but, but when your body and all those things are changing, that Jesus experienced all these things. He knows the full range and all the complexities of what it means to be a human. He understands that intimately. He knows what it's like to be confused or to be frustrated or to be uh, dealing with anger or to experience temptation. Jesus understood all those things. He became one of us. He can identify with you. There are very few things that you are currently going through to which Jesus can't say in some way, I know what that feels like. Isn't that comforting? 
Isn't that good to know that Jesus has some measure of identification with you? That he can identify with you. Has someone ever tried to identify with you in a way that just doesn't connect? It happens to me occasionally. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I'm from Oklahoma, and sometimes people know nothing about that other than it's a state you fly over or drive through. But one thing they might know is that it has like rodeos and belt buckles and cattle ranches and farms. And across the river from where I grew up, there was a horseshoeing school where people would go and learn how to put horseshoes on. Um, and so people might kind of try to identify with me in all those ways, but, but I know nothing about farming. I know nothing about ranching. I know nothing about horses or horseshoeing or farming. None of those things fit for me. But if you want to talk about college football, I grew up in a college football town. Uh, I was buying tickets from scalpers in the middle of the first quarter from the time I was in third grade, taking $10 down to the University of Oklahoma and after the game starts and somebody's holding up a ticket for 50, I'll say, I'll give you five. And he's, all right, kid, you know, go in. And uh, that's just me. I know the reality. I know OU Nebraska. I know OU Penn State. I know all these rivalries. If you want to identify with me, we talk college football and we'll, we'll get along and have a nice long conversation. You want to talk about 80s gangster rap and, you know, all the things that I grew up doing. Like, we can identify with each other. You talk horses and roping and rodeo, it's not going to work. I don't, I'm not going to identify with any of that stuff. You want to talk about struggles with addictions and difficulties and abuses and hardships in your childhood. Yeah, we can, we can have some room uh, to, to talk. In all those ways, we can identify with each other. But in every way, Jesus can identify with you. In every way, He can identify with you. He knows the struggles you're feeling. He knows the anxieties that you carry on a daily basis. He knows the anger and the rage and the difficulties, the things that swell up within you. He knows the complexities, the full range of human emotion. He has experienced it on your behalf. There's not a person in the room that He can't look at you and say, I know in some way what you're going through, what you're dealing with. Can you imagine a Savior who is outside of that experience? One in which has no identification with you or what you go through. Jesus identifies with us. He became one of us. He helps us in times of temptation. This is another aspect of the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to them. He helps you in times of temptation. James says we're all tempted. James describes the process of temptation, that, that there's a desire in your life, and that as you feed that desire, it entices you like a lure. You know, sometimes you should view temptation like a fish would look at a hook. It's something you want, but it's something that might hurt. Temptation is destructive. The, the end of temptation, sin is destructive. It's like a force, like water. Anybody experienced too much water this week? Right. <laughs> Flooded basements. Water is good, but water in, in a large amount can be destructive. It erodes, it destroys. Sin is similar in that it, it is a destructive force. And which of us haven't experienced the damaging, destructive force of sin in our life? Whether it's your sin or somebody else's. Jesus gives us a resource in times of temptation. When you're being enticed. When the hook is dangled in front of you, He is a resource for you. 
Why? Because he's experienced temptation. He's experienced it. And no one has experienced the level of temptation that Jesus has. I mean, just think about it. We experience a level of temptation until we give in. We don't know the upper levels of temptation before you give in. And not only was Jesus experiencing temptation, we experience it from our own desires, our own sinful desires. That's a strong pull in one direction. Our own internal desires. That's a a difficult enemy to wrestle with. But there are also outward enemies. The angels, uh, the fallen angels, the demons, they entice and make attractive. The culture, that's a third way in which we experience temptation. Jesus experienced all of those other than the inward pull of his own uh, flesh because he wasn't sinful. But yet he was tempted by Satan himself to the fullest measure, to the point where he resisted to where his capillaries burst in his forehead and his face to where he was sweating drops of blood. Anybody ever resisted temptation to that level? None of us. But he resisted, and he resisted temptation, and he resisted it to the level that he was victorious over it so that he embraced the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus endured the greatest level of temptation ever. So when you're tempted, when you're tempted, you are able to call upon the strength that Jesus provides to resist temptation. If you choose to. If you choose to. You you can be in a position where you kind of desire sin, and you willfully walk into it. That has its own destructive consequences. But you could also be in a position where you're walking with the Lord and you're growing and you're, you're seeking to please the Father and walk in a holy life. And so you're resisting temptation. And when it comes along, as it does for all of us, you're less likely to give in and you're more likely to resist as you cry out to Jesus the strength of your temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 through 13 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands strong take heed lest he fall. There is a pride that comes before the fall. Right? Proverbs 16, 18, pride cometh before the fall. I share this with my son when we're playing basketball together and he rains a three down on me and, and uh, gets a little swagger, right? And I say, hey man, pride comes before the fall. You just keep inflating your head here and uh, an old man's going to bring it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to drive uh, to the hoop and, uh, and I'm going to make a basket here. So pride comes before the fall. And in the same way, if you're in a position right now where you think everything's going well and, and I'm resisting temptation and, and you start to pat yourself on the back, just beware that pride comes before the fall. Um, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful to you. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. If you don't memorize Scripture, memorize that Scripture. There is an escape hatch. Right? Escape. There's a way to get out. Right? Uh, There's a hatch that leads you out to victory. and, And Jesus knows the way and leads you to the way if you choose to follow Him. That's a great aspect of salvation, right? Who of us doesn't struggle with temptation? Lastly, finally, Jesus accomplished all of this by choosing a path of humility and suffering. So when you choose to follow Jesus, you're following Him down a path of humility and suffering. So you say, "Yeah, great. I was hoping for suffering and humility. 
That's when I wrote my life plan, I hoped it would go down a road of suffering and humility and pain. But, but listen closely. In the biblical economy of salvation, there is no glorification without suffering. There is no heaven unless you walk through the path of humility and suffering. See, when I became a believer, a brand new believer, in the way that God radically saved me uh, in February of 1991, and I was walking in this atheistic, agnostic, immoral lifestyle, and when Jesus met me and redeemed me and saved me in this way, my life was radically transformed, and it was just a few years into it that I was just arrogant in my salvation. To the point where I asked a guy on the way to a funeral, I said, Dave, when we get to heaven, do you think God is going to you know, let us show films. I was a high school football player, and so we watched films after every game, and we broke down the tape in such a way that it was slow-mo, and you saw all your spin moves or great catches or everything in front of everybody, or if you missed a block, or if you messed up. In every way, everybody in the room was able to watch the film. And in my pride and arrogance and my new young belief, and God had used me in such a way, and I'd been transformed in such a way that I said, hey, do you think God is going to show films when we get to heaven? Do you think He's going to let us break down the tape? And, and, and this wise older saint said, oh, I hope not. <laughs> Listen, I would never say that now. <laughs> Lord, burn the tapes, right? There's just a natural arrogance that comes with newly being saved. If you're newly saved, God bless you. There comes a time when experienced saints realize the depth of our depravity and the struggle and the difficulty and the humility. We call these J-curves, and and J-curves was coined by, I believe, Paul Miller. And Paul Miller talks about this in A Loving Life and in A Praying Life, a fantastic book series of books, a great author, but he he tracks for us this pattern of humility and suffering. And it looks like this. You go down this path of humility and suffering, and on the upper end, there is the salvation. There is the joy. There is the reward. There is the enduring part through the difficulty. And the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you follow Jesus, the more you experience the humility and the suffering. Experienced saints around the room are nodding their heads. You think about Abraham, given a great promise, didn't realize the promise of his inheritance ever. Waited till he was a hundred before he even had the child of promise. When the promise was given decades before, experienced suffering. You think about Isaac, you think about Jacob. Uh, and Laban and 14 years of struggle and suffering to the point where he sent his entire family across the river so that he could wrestle with this angel of God, that he could wrestle and, and was wrenched and hurt and injured in this fight he had with God, but in, in the end was delivered from his brother. You think about Joseph who was wrongly imprisoned before becoming the prince of Egypt and saving his entire family. You think about Moses who was banished from Egypt and shepherding for 40 years though he was a child, an adopted child of Pharaoh. He took a path of humility and suffering. You think about David who was given the role of king but had to dodge spears from Saul who was out of his mind but was on the run for all these years. You find a savior, a Christ type in Scripture and that person will have foreshadowed the suffering of Christ in some way before God used him in any way of deliverance. 
In the same way, you are experiencing humility and suffering if you're faithfully following Christ. And in the way that you do that, your greatest enemy is pride and your greatest asset is humility. Numbers 12.3 says that Moses was the most humble man in the world. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says that if my people who call on my name shall humble themselves. Matthew 23.12 says whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4.6 says if you want more grace, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to what? To the humble. 1 Peter 5.6 says humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. James 4.10 Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. Are you walking in pride and arrogance and resistance, stubbornness, a willful independence that says, I got this, I can do it my way, and I, I can handle this. There's a natural pride that comes with that, and the end of that is destruction. But if you're willing to say, I don't have it. I don't have this all together. I can't do this any longer. I'm tired of fighting God. I'm tired of resisting. I'm tired of trying to do it my own way. There is a beauty in humility. There's a redemption in the salvation. And this path of humility and suffering is is how you realize it. And so endure. The author of Hebrews saying, hang in there. I know it's hard, but you got this. In Christ Jesus, you have this. Our victor who has gone before us. So Lord Jesus, this morning we exalt you. You are Christus victor. Jesus, the winner, the victorious one. You have purchased salvation through death and obedience and suffering and the cross. And because of it, God gave you the greatest name, the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. Lord, forgive us when we grow weary and suffering. Forgive us when we struggle and we are tempted to backslide. For those believers in the room, would you give them endurance Would you give them strength? Would you make them see the preservation of the saints as a precious doctrine? The fact that we are in your hand and that nothing, no one can snatch us out of your hand if we are in Christ. Would you help us to endure by faith? Lord Jesus, would you give us strength to follow you completely and wholly? For those who don't know you in the room, I pray that they would yield I pray that they would finally tap out and say, I can't do this. Doing things my way has made a wreck of my life. It's ruined my soul. Jesus, for those who are willing to make that confession and to yield to you, I thank you that you promised to bring life and all the blessings and benefits of this great salvation that you purchased. Would you make it a reality today in this room? Would you call sinners to yourself? Would you call believers to endure? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.